Well, we continue our study this morning in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, the text that Ben just read. So Ben, thank you for reading that. Last week, we spent a significant amount of time considering the ancient cultural and historical background to this text. And if you were not here last week, I would recommend if you have questions about what I say today, to start by referring to that sermon that's on our website because we covered a lot of ground there. And if you plan to be with us next week as we consider parents and children, especially fathers and their children, and then the following week as we consider the text that addresses slaves and masters, the sermon from last Sunday is really important for hearing what these household codes are and what Paul is doing in them. Well, this morning we're going to consider the instructions to wives and husbands again in more detail. Uh, But I want us to cut through a little bit of the noise of debate surrounding this text and to try to hear the note that Paul, I think, wants us to grab onto, which is this clear, pervasive sound of unity that, that accentuates and punctuates everything he says. While we are trying to wrestle through the cultural situation and dealing with our own culture as it relates to submission and authority, as we need to do, and as we did last week to some degree, we can become so uh, distracted that we miss what Paul is actually doing in this text. So I want to suggest that our framework and really the interpretive grid for understanding what Paul is saying in this text is going to be found um, by looking at his reference to Genesis 2, where he where he just declares that it is for this reason that a a man will leave his father and his mother and and he'll cleave to his wife. If we're using the King James, he'll join to her and the two will be one flesh. I think that that reference to Genesis 2.24 is really foundational to understanding what Paul is saying regarding wifely submission and husbandly headship. That that is going to be the, the first interpretive grid, but I think also there's an interpretive grid that's found by attending to the larger message of Ephesians. As we started this series, I tried to make the case that Paul's overriding theme and concern is to promote unity within the body of Christ. So it's no surprise that when we get to the relationships of the household within the body of Christ, that unity once again is a pervasive theme. So let me describe something for you. And I'm not going to tell you what I'm describing until the end. Um, And I want you to ask yourself, what am I talking about here? Paul is saying that there are two separate individuals. According to different DNAs, they're different people. They're, They're as different as you can imagine them to be. And in fact, there's a lot of hostility that happens between these people. Uh, But because of what Jesus is doing, these two people are becoming one flesh. Their differences are set aside. These things that mark them off as separate or that they would look to themselves and say, I'm better than you because of this about me. All of their personal features dim in light of this new one flesh union that God has provided through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. When you you hear that description, I've, I've maybe tried to lead you to think of, uh, that I'm describing one thing. And if you're thinking I'm talking about marriage, you're half right. But that's not how Paul starts about two separate people becoming one flesh in the book of Ephesians. 
that language begins in Ephesians chapter 2 when he's talking about Jews and Gentiles who were formerly hostile to one another. But God took the two and made them into one body. He made them one flesh under the headship of Jesus Christ. So I want to suggest that if we start reading Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, and, and we hear Paul's appeal to the one flesh union of the husband and wife without placing it within this framework of the one flesh-like union between Jews and Gentiles in the church and their, their union with Christ as his body and him as the head, then we can't understand what Paul is saying when he talks about wives submitting and, and husbands sacrificially loving. We can only do that if we understand that whatever Paul is saying is made possible because there's been a greater union that's been won because of what Jesus Christ has done. So in the flow of the letter, Paul is doing what we might call an argument from the greater to the lesser, we might say. He might say, look at this huge dispute between Jews and Gentiles that's virtually irreconcilable. There's hostility and division, but guess what? Jesus has acted in a way that, that tears down the wall of hostility and makes these two separate groups one flesh, one body. So if God could do that in Christ for, for nations and people who have historically been divided, when it comes to your marriage, whatever hostility you have, whatever division you have, God can conquer that through Jesus Christ as well. He's done it with another group, and now he can do it in your marriage. So, so you see the argument from the greater to the lesser. He can do it there. He can do it here. Well, that leads us with a question. Does God need to do that? Are there problems in marriage? Um, does there need to be a reconciling and a tearing down of hostility between spouses? I imagine that if we did a survey here, just experientially, that we would say yes. That, that's true. I know in my marriage, there are times where there's hostility that can only be conquered because of what Jesus has conquered on my behalf. And as we look at marriages across the planet, we see troubled marriages that need the conquering of Jesus. But we don't need to rely on our own experiences to say that there's this need. And we don't need to look at divorce rates or anything else to say that Jesus needs to tear down the wall of hostility in marriage. All we need to do is read the Bible. And, and I think that this is what Paul is doing when he directs our attention to Genesis chapter 2. What, what Paul is saying there is that when God created marriage, when God gave marriage as a gift, there was a one flesh union that was there, that, that was to all perception, human perception, indissoluble. It's, it's togetherness forever, okay? But as we trace that biblical story, that togetherness is broken very, very quickly, isn't it? So if you've read Genesis 2 lately, you, you hear Adam, after he's woken up, God has created the woman from his side, and he says something like this, this woman is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She is me except like the newer, better me. And, and he looks at her with wonder and awe. But just a handful of verses later, Adam says this about, about himself, really, but about the better him. He says, everything has gone wrong because of the woman that you gave to me. Marriage is broken. And, and not the kind of marriages that we experience 
where we, we find a spouse who's very different from us, who doesn't share our DNA, who isn't like us. That's, that's one of the, the mysteries of marriage, is that you, you become closer with someone who's unlike you than you ever will with your parents or your siblings. Adam, uniquely, was married to one created from his side, according to the Genesis narrative. And in that one, there's so much hostility and disharmony that there's a palpable disunity that pervades every marriage, starting there from then on in the biblical story. Well, why is that? Why is there disunity in marriage? Well, there's disunity in marriage because there, there's introduced into humanity disunity with God. There's a breaking of covenant faithfulness with God, and immediately that, that covenant infidelity infiltrates every other relationship. Husbands and wives, parents and children, siblings, all is distorted now. There's hostility that's introduced because of a breaking of covenantal fellowship with God. So when we think about all of the relationships Paul addresses in the household codes, he is framing it within that story. He's influenced and informed by Genesis' record of humanity, and he's saying that God has done something in Christ for all of humanity, and that now has implications in your marriages, in, in, in the rest of your household. And, and in that ancient day, households include uh, children and then also slaves. But we're going to have to deal with those things. But Paul here is directing us to understand that his instructions to wives and husbands are intended to participate in the grace, great reversal introduced by Jesus Christ. So I want you to catch on to the, the reversal that happened. By, by remembering the way that husbands and wives relate post-sin in the garden, and then hearing Paul's commands in Ephesians. So in, in the garden, after God condemns the serpent, he speaks to the woman in Genesis 3, and he tells her this. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now this is a really debated text. How do we interpret this? Well, I'm going to give you the way that I, I think it should be, and um, I, I can't totally prove everything in, in our time period here, but I think these are, this is a negative statement on both accounts. I, I think God is not making a, a promise of redemption here. He's just speaking predictively of how all humanity will relate to one another in this sin-infiltrated world. So when he tells the wife, your desire will be for your husband. I think that he's saying you are going to desire to manipulate and rule over and crush your husband. And, and this is how all marriages are going to be. This is going to be the natural state of men and women in marriage. Now, by God's common grace, this is mitigated at times. And because of our own selfishness, sometimes this is mitigated as we realize Oh, if I'm outrightly, you know, obtuse towards someone, I don't get what I want, so I'm going to be nicer to them. But the fundamental orientation for wives to husbands will be a desire for their husband. That's a negative desire. I'm going to get technical here for a second. Um, we have prepositions and, and words that are sometimes ambiguous. And that word for is am ambiguous. Um, so uh, when it says your desire is for your husband, it could be for like positively, like you just want to enjoy and know and, and spend time with your husband. 
Well, I don't think that's what it is. There's a different use of that that's called the adversative or, or the preposition of disadvantage, and we generally translate that against. And a lot of translations leave it vague and ambiguous by just saying for, and I think that's good because it forces us to wrestle with it. But I think we should understand this as the wife's desire will be against her husband. She will not be for him. Paul is going to say that because of Christ, there's now a reversal of that. Instead of wives being against their husbands, he can say, submit to your husband. Be for your husband. Voluntarily give of yourself for your husband. So, so that's one parallel line that we'll see. And then the second will be with respect to husbands and their relationship to their wives. So he follows it, God follows it up by saying to Eve, but he will rule over you. I don't think that this is a right kind of relationship to his wife. I think that this is a distortion of the dominion that was given to Adam and Eve that ought to have been exercised over all of creation in justice and righteousness and peace. And Adam is going to aim his sights not on a right dominion over the earth, but on a distorted, crushing dominion over his wife. He, he is not going to relate to her well. He is going to respond in kind, and he is going to crush her. Interpreting this prediction this way finds verification when we read this exact same language when God speaks to Cain. He tells Cain that sin is crouching at the door its desire is for you. We should translate that. Its desire is against you, but you must rule over it. What kind of ruling is Cain supposed to have over sin, this depersonification of the serpent? He's supposed to have a crushing, life-sucking, demolishing rule over sin. He's supposed to crush the sin that's crouching at the door for him. So taking that language there where we see it once again, we understand that the wife's desire will be against her husband in a negative way and the husband will rule over his wife in a crushing, domineering way that is not according to God's good design. That doesn't fit with the picture of unity described in Genesis 2.24 where they are described as one flesh. So when we put Paul's commands within that storyline, we start to hear them in a little bit of a different way and, and I think as we hear them and as we put them into action in our lives, what we start to see is that we are participating in the great reversal that's ushered in by Jesus Christ. So these commands are not something that are burdensome. Christ's commands are never burdensome. But instead, these commands welcome us to participate in the great reversal that God has accomplished in Christ already. Okay, having said all that, let's look at these verses in particular, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Now that we have this interpretive framework, hopefully we'll be able to um, understand it well. Paul begins by instructing the wife to submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Well, when, when these instructions are given, in, in Paul's ancient context, no one's batting an eye at this. This is not breaking with cultural convention. This is not changing any ideas. It's, it's really not anything surprising at all. It's, it's just probably the way that, that 
most marriages operated. Husband is in charge, wife, do what your husband says. Um, so when they're first hearing this, it sounds like Paul is very much affirming their, their cultural assumption. Now, some have suggested that, that Paul is breaking with culture by, by instructing wives to submit to their own husbands, not to submit to all men. But, but Paul later will tell husbands to love your own wives. I don't think he's trying to make any point here. I think he's trying to say, hear this within the larger biblical framework and not so much within the story of your culture. That, that's why Paul will draw their attention to Genesis 2.24. That's why he's talked about the, the body of Christ as he has so far. I think we need to hear these commands, not primarily against the background of our culture or really any culture that's happened between now and Paul's day, but within this narrative framework of the Bible where there is disunity in marriage. And now Paul is, is giving instructions that will cultivate a unity with marriage that has not been experienced since before the sin in the garden. This command is part of that great reversal in human marriage from disunity to unity. And it's a reversal that's made possible only because of what Christ has already done between Jew and Gentile and ultimately between what Christ has done between God and humanity. Now, sadly, this command for wives to submit to their husbands has sometimes been leveraged in self-serving ways, either by husbands or by whole cultures within the church that actually perpetuates the kind of disunity that's described in Genesis 3. So I think you understand what I mean. Sometimes this command for wives to submit to their husbands has been heard in a way where when it's put into action, it, it cultivates the kind of sin that infiltrated marriage that's described in terms of a wife's desire being against her husband and a husband dominating or ruling over her. That is not the biblical vision for marriage, and that is not the end that Paul wants this command to be worked out towards. Instead, Paul is seeking for wives to recognize that like Eve and like every wife who, who has experienced marriage after her, there is a natural inclination to be against your husband and not for him. So instead of being against your husband, you should be for your husband voluntarily giving of yourself to help cultivate the kind of unity described in Genesis 2.24, where, where it could be said that they were one flesh. They, they were the same. They had each other's interests in common, and they pursued fruitful, fulfilling, flourishing life together. So you might ask then, well, how should this command be put into practice? What does it look like, and what does it really mean? Well, unfortunately, we might say, Paul did not give us that list either. And so I can't really give you a bullet point checklist of everything you need to do to be a submissive wife. That, that is not something that any of us can do. And as some have, I think, wisely commented, there is no checklist that will apply to every marriage in every situation, in every culture, in every time. So for us to desire, for there to be a black and white list of what submission in marriage looks like, that's a fantasy. It's, it's not reality. We can't find that. So stop looking. It would, in some ways, make life easier, but we have a higher and more difficult calling. But we have one that we're enabled to do. So how, how wise should you 
work out this command in your marriage, I would suggest that you do so by looking a few verses earlier to Ephesians 5.15, where Paul instructs this, pay careful attention to how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. To work this out, to pursue unity in your marriage, you need the wisdom of God and you need careful attention to how you live. And beyond that, as Paul goes on to say, you need the community of faith to operate in conversation with as you work through the various challenges that you face in your life and your marriage. And it is by the guidance of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Word, and the community of faith that you'll be able to work out this command in your marriage. You might push back and say, that's still not good enough. That's not giving me enough. Well, let me give you one more thing. And that is, think about the purpose for which the command was given, which is unity in your marriage. And, and consider, am I living in a way that helps cultivate unity, or am I living in a way that helps you know, cultivate disunity? And, and I think that's the guide, guiding North Star in our marriages. And this, this will also be true, men, when we talk in a moment about loving our wives. What, what does that look like? Well, ultimately, we'll, we'll know our actions by, by the fruits, we might say. Is there unity or disunity in marriage? So wives, submit to your husbands. As to the Lord, your husband is not the Lord, nor is he commanded to enforce an act of submission upon you. This is a calling that you take on as one of the redeemed of God who participate in the great reversal that casts out disunity that's brought in by sin and welcomes the unity that's brought in by Christ. Paul then shifts his attentions to the husbands as he instructs them to love their wives. Now, we must just briefly recall what is the natural disposition of of a husband in a sinful world. It's not to love, but to dominate over. It's not to treat with charity, but to treat with coercion. Paul is is instructing us that these things can indeed be reversed because they have been reversed by Christ. No longer will a husband's mode of being be tied to domination and this, this crushing rulership, but instead it will be patterned on the headship of Christ, which will be described in terms of sacrificial love. Okay, so let's read this text, verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to, to clean, cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. So he instructs husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. His desire was to make her holy, to cleanse her, to wash her, to present her blameless before him. So these instructions that are given to the husband are now paradigmatic, that is, it's now the pattern by which they ought to relate to their wives. These instructions, unlike the instruction for the wife to submit to her husband, these instructions would have turned heads and people would have batted. They would have have looked at these instructions with some confusion in that cultural day. So, So where Paul seems like in one way, you could hear it, he's just affirming the prevalent culture of that day. Now he is very much acting in in distinction from that culture. And as we discussed last week, 
he is, as many have noted, turning the head-body metaphor on its head. He's describing headship and rulership in a way that did not fit with the cultural pattern of that day, and I would suggest does not fit with the cultural pattern of our day. So when we hear this text, we need to hear it and, and recognize that it goes against our natural disposition. We need to receive it, though. Men in particular, husbands here, you need to receive it as God's plan for your marriage. To, to reverse the curse, in a sense, and to, to reverse the way that we might be inclined to relate to our wives, and that, as we look at human history, men have often related to women. Paul instructs and prescribes that the husband, the head, operate in service to the body, to the wife, in self-giving, loving, and sacrificial ways, even in ways that might defy cultural convention. It's interesting to me that the way Christ is described as relating to the church is, is it's described in domestic, household, laundering, and ironing sort of terms in the kind of task that the head of the house would not have taken on, but, but would have assigned either to a wife or children or, or to slaves. Well, Christ operates as a servant, and, and he loves in that way, and he leads in that way. Husbands are called to relate to their wives as Christ related to the church. Is this unique to Paul? Is Paul making something up here? No, he's not. And if we read the gospel accounts, we start to see that even if Paul didn't give us commands to reconceive of authority and headship in this way, Jesus did, both in his direct teaching and in his example. So consider, for instance, his instructions to his disciples in Matthew 20, 25, when he told them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Who does that sound like? That sounds like the description of the husband in Genesis 3. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. Christian husbands ought not act like the Gentile rulers or their father, Adam, who lorded the rulership over others. Instead, they need to embrace the next words of Jesus when he said this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Christian headship and leadership, then, is not lording authority that gains for the self, but instead it serves for the other. I think it's significant that when Paul describes Jesus' headship in this text, he talks about it in terms of washing with water, with this cleansing. And, and it recalls to mind again Jesus' actions in John 13, where Jesus demonstrated that the teacher and master acts as a servant, where if you want to be great, you serve. And as he instructed his disciples, if I, your master and Lord, are doing this for you, so you also ought to do for one another. This is a heavy command, isn't it? But it's not the kind of command that's impossible. And for those who have grown up in perhaps a world that says headship is strong, authoritative leadership, this command might be even harder to hear. I think that sometimes we talk about authority as servant leadership, 
but we still put the emphasis on the kind of leadership that, that gives out dictates and commands. But as we look at this text in Jesus' own example, the emphasis is not on leadership, but on slavery. It's not on directing, but on serving. And what is the result of that service and slavery? When we look at Jesus and his disciples, it resulted in him being able to say that, that he had been made one with them. And now his people are being made one. And when it's put into action in marriage, it has the result that husbands and wives operate in unity and harmony and they flourish together. Now, if Paul stopped here, we'd sort of think he's had equal weighted instructions for wives to pursue unity through submission and husbands to pursue unity through love and sacrifice. But Paul goes on to reaffirm this command to the husbands and then to explain it even further and in more detailed terms. And what that should communicate to us is that husbands, you have an even greater responsibility to, to pursue this unity with your spouse. And especially where husbands are found in cultures where, where they might have the, the greater headship or authority or privilege or power, there's an even greater extent of responsibility that they take on. That was certainly the case in Paul's day, and I think that's why he goes on to, to redouble his efforts to push men to pursue unity in marriage. And he does so now by describing the, the, the fact that husbands and wives have been made one flesh in marriage. So hear him in verse 28. He says, in the same way, Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it. And of course, we know people who don't do that, but there's something wrong with them. So it's not as if, if this isn't true. But just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. So Paul's point is, husbands, when you fail to love your wives, you're failing to love yourself. When you're failing to pursue unity with your spouse, you're actually dividing yourself. And, and that just does not produce life and flourishing. You're, you're not truly loving yourself. You're not caring for yourself. You do that instinctively. But if your conception of caring for yourself doesn't involve caring for your wife, you're not really caring for yourself. And I'm sure that the temptations for husbands to care for themselves and not for their wives look differently in every society and culture and even in every marriage. It, it might be as simple as a, a hyper-willingness to buy that next tool and gadget for yourself, but, but not wanting to provide anything for your wife. In, in our culture, that's probably like the common way that this takes shape. But there are many ways, I think, that husbands tend to love themselves at the expense of their wife, but as Paul shows us, that's not even loving themselves. It ultimately leads to a kind of shriveling up because it's not serving his own body well. What's the example? Well, the example is Christ who loves the church because we are members of his body. Once again, the example put before husbands is the example of Jesus Christ who gave of himself for his body. In counterintuitive ways, Jesus died so that his body would live. That's counterintuitive. But that's what Paul calls husbands to do, to die to themselves, not to pursue self-preservation, because that self-preservation ultimately leads to self-destruction. 
So Paul gives these commands, and now he, he quotes that verse that I referenced that gives the vision for the end goal here. Verse 31, he says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is the grand vision for marriage, marital harmony and unity. Now, I'm afraid that sometimes when we talk about this one flesh union, there have been too many Christian jokes about this that just treat it as if this is talking about a sexual relationship, and that's all that's being envisioned here. When in reality, what's being envisioned here is a harmony and life together such that you're headed in the same direction, you're on the same team, and you're for one another. You're essentially operating in so much unity that you're one person. You're of one mind. So this description does not say so much about a sexual relationship as it does about the everyday, every moment harmony that God intends for husbands and wives to enjoy as they operate for one another, giving up their rights and serving the other. Paul goes on to say that this mystery is profound, that this can happen that husbands and wives can conquer the hostility through Christ, this is a profound mystery. Now, as a side note here, especially for those of you who have Roman Catholic friends, uh, this word mystery is translated into Latin as sacramentum. And so when your Latin friends talk about marriage, they're going to talk about it as a sacrament. Well, well, this is where they're getting that from. And, and we would say that that's a problematic way of understanding things. But, but it's at least pointing in the right direction, that there's something mysterious about this. And, the, and there's something sacred about the, the marriage that God gives to men and women. But I think what's perhaps more interesting than that is that Paul moves beyond the mystery of marriage to talk about the mystery of Christ in the church. That mystery is profound. That it's possible for you to have unity and harmony in your marriage is very profound. But what's more profound is that you can have unity and harmony with Christ, so much so that your identity is totally wrapped up in him, and in that you can be identified as his body. Reflection on this mystery, I think, can prove fruitful for us. And, and it actually, as we reflect on that, pushes against some of the wrong conceptions about, about marriage, and it helps us to perceive marriage more rightly. I want to give you one perception about marriage that is distorted. And, and when we reflect on the profound mystery, as Paul does, it, it gets corrected. And, and then I want to give you one idea of, of how we move forward together. I think one of the distortions that when we talk about marriage is that we lose our identity and our identity now becomes wrapped up in our marriage. And this has been processed in various ways. For those who are unmarried, it's often processed in terms of if I can just get married, that's going to be everything to me, and, and I'll have a new identity, and I'll have a new life. Whatever struggles and challenges and problems and emptiness I feel, I'll have a new identity as married, and, and that will fix it. Well, that's a distorted view of marriage that Paul fixed here, fixes here by saying your identity is now found in this profound mystery of Christ in the church, where all meaning and identity and fixes to our problems is found. Jesus is the answer. It fix, fixes a distorted view of marriage from the inside, perhaps especially that's been experienced in, in other cultures and, and in days 
past and in more conservative environments, perhaps, where a wife will say, as I enter into marriage, I now lose my identity and my identity becomes my, it's my husband is now my identity. Everything is wrapped up in him. And, and then for both spouses, as children come, now my identity is children. Or, or for spouses who would like children and don't have them, if we could just have children, it's here. While Paul corrects all of this, says your identity is fundamentally found in the more profound mystery of Christ in the church. So, so just as Jew and Gentile are taken and make it into one new person, when you join in marriage, it's not as if you take half of your identity and half of your spouse's identity and, and you mix them together and whoever has the stronger one, they come out on top. You, you come together in a new union and in a new one flesh union, but ultimately that's not your identity. Your identity will be in the union that you have with Jesus Christ. So, so I think that as Paul ties together Christ in the church and marriage, it corrects our vision of marriage so that as we move forward, now, whenever you see harmony between spouses when there shouldn't be, what you're seeing is not just a beautiful thing that's happening there, but you're catching a glimpse of the greater harmony that we now have with God as the church in Christ. That's the way that Paul points forward for us. And, and it changes your motivation for pursuing unity in your marriage to be greater than just yourself, but to participate in the harmony that God has offered. It changes the way that you perceive things when you go over to another family's house, whether you're married or unmarried, and you see spouses work through a conflict together, and they come out on the other side more unified, despite the fact that, you know, dinner burned and one of the kids did something awful and, and they work through the conflict they have and now you see harmony. Well, that is just the testimony to the fact that God offers you harmony in Christ and that in the church together we can relate in that kind of unity forevermore. So, so it changes the way we see the world. And where we see broken marriages and disharmony, we start to see that the answer isn't found by addressing the lesser first, but by addressing the greater and giving the hope of the gospel that can then infiltrate those marriages in relationships and result in the unity that God intended. Paul sums everything up then in this way. Each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Pursue this unity together by entering into the larger story of God's redemptive work in Christ that brings unity and proclaims that final day when God will unite all things together, things in heaven and things on earth in Jesus Christ. Until that day, let's pursue the unity of the body of Christ and unity in our marriages is just a reflection and an echo of the greater unity that we have in Christ.